Welcome back to Emory University's Creativity Conversation podcast. My name is Maggie Becker. I am an Emory alum in theater studies and creative writing. I work with Arts at Emory, a communications and advocate team for all the arts events that occur on Emory University's campus. Part of my work with Arts at Emory is producing these podcasts. These podcasts are pulled from live recordings of Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversations, an endowed speaker series where renowned thinkers and creators come into conversation about their craft on Emory's campus. I am joined by Brianca Rainford to discuss the John Grade Creativity Conversation. In this recording session, we accidentally referred to Grade as Grade. We apologize to Mr. Grade. Hi, I'm Brianca Rainford. I am the current visual arts type scholar, and being a type scholar kind of means that we advocate for arts on campus. Why did you pick this creativity conversation? So when I was going through the different creativity conversations, I really wanted to find a person who kind of focused on what I was interested in. And I'm a visual arts scholar, so I'm constantly using my hands and drawing and, you know, sculpting once in a while. And that's exactly what he does. He was able to incorporate like a lot of art into nature and he used science for um, a lot of his art projects as well, which I found really interesting. And you actually have a connection to science, don't you? I do. Um, I am a integrated visual arts co-major, so that means that I have to have another major along with my co-major. And the major that I picked is called neuroscience and behavioral biology. So I'm constantly like torn in between like art and science, but I learned how to incorporate the two of them when I'm doing my art projects or when I'm thinking in my biochemistry class about the brain or about the mechanisms of our body and how much that ties into art yeah. and how it itself is an art form, how you use your brain to create art. I think often people want to separate the two, but truly they go hand in hand because art is a science. There's so much to intentionally making a decision, right, that is a science. Definitely. And so what are some things that really stuck out to you that John Grade either discussed or some of his art that you've looked into? What I found really interesting was that he traveled for about six years, which he says in the creativity conversation. And in that, he looked a lot into nature and nature science. And he looked a lot into how his artwork kind of fits in with nature. He had an artwork that used chemistry. It had like polymers and what it was made out of does like disintegrates very easily in water and like different liquid forms. So he used that idea of disintegration and he made these giant like 24 foot structures that when dipped into India ink dissolved. And it was that idea of like impermanence. Things kind of last forever. Things eventually fade. And he used science to do that, which I thought was really, really interesting. I am working on a project now. I'm interested in printmaking. Part of the project I'm doing now incorporates nature into the artwork that I'm creating. So I'm focusing it on the hair of like Afrocentric women and how our hair like grows up instead of down. (laughs) And I reminds me of like nature and like how trees grow up and so I am putting like some trees into my artwork and using the idea of kind of starting over kind of like a barren landscape and then growing something from it so when he was talking about the nature and his art and how he'll like make an artwork and let it get destroyed by birds I thought that was really interesting he mentioned like his ego and how 
to put your artwork into nature is kind of egocentric because you're disrupting something that's like naturally created and has its own ecosystem and moves on its own. And you putting your giant piece of work in there is just kind of disrupting that, which is why he allows his artwork to be destroyed because it's like a hit to his ego saying that like, oh, the things that I create aren't like meant to last forever like things still can come and destroy and that's okay so I think that's more what he was trying to come to not so much like trying to like teach somebody try to push this idea for it I think it was more of like his own yeah like, <laughs> his own, I mean his own exploration of, yeah. of identity in a way exactly that you as well explore identity yes unfortunately in our current political climate black art and black bodies often end up being political statements even if that was not not the artist's intention. Yeah, that's so true. Do you take a political statement in your art or is it more of a self-exploration? So when I first started exploring this idea of like black beauty, black hair, it was more of me accepting like myself and my own hair. I didn't mean for it to uh, become a political statement when I first did it, but I did a critique with my classmates and they asked me a point like period, is this a political statement? Is this something that you're trying to push onto like other people? And first I was like, no, <laughs> like, no, I don't, it doesn't matter what you think. I'm doing this for my own growth and my own self-exploration. But as I started like venturing into it like more and more and started looking at the way people were like viewing my artwork, I was like, oh, you know, this could easily turn into this giant, like on a, you know, on a platform, like this is what I'm trying to like put out there. Something that I realized in creating this kind of art is that the way I interpret my art is very different from other the way other people interpret it. And that's something that I can't help the way people take in what I'm trying to or not trying to put out there. Uh, like I had an artwork where it was a girl with curly like puffs and she had a protractor in her hair. And her protract- the protractor kind of like made up her hair. In my mind, it was a indication of shrinkage and how natural hair shrinks a lot. Like curly hair just kind of just kind of like shrinks. <laughs> and how hair growth is like measured beauty. When I would grow up, oh, longer hair is more beautiful. But with curly hair, everything just kind of shrinks up. You can't really tell how long anything is unless you straighten it. And, you know, that can be really damaging to the hair. That was my idea. But when I showed it to my teachers and my classmates, they thought that the protractor was a form of intelligence, which I thought was really interesting. And they're like, oh, you know how women in, like, past, they weren't really uh, thought of to be smart, especially, like, in science and math. They're more, oh, like, homemakers. And they thought it was a political statement talking about, like, intelligence. And it just happened to be a girl with curly hair. And um, so that's, I was like, oh, you know, like, I can't help the way that you interpreted that because it's like your own kind of feelings and that's from your own background. Yeah, I don't know. I can help the way I make it, how I make myself feel. So it was never really trying to think about how other people would take it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's always been about myself and my own your own experiences. My own experiences, my own growth. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it is important for people to attribute meaning to art, even if it's the wrong or, you know, not the intended meaning? I think if you don't find your own meaning, you're not really looking at it. You know, you see things, you like you see artwork, and you may not come to the same realization. Like, you don't have to. You're completely different. You have different experiences. You have a different lifestyle. Come from a different background. Like, you're, nev- you're never going to come to the same conclusion as someone else. 
but whether or not you should come to a conclusion, that's a really interesting thing to think about. I think it's more like a natural thing, whatever comes to you naturally. And if you generally like just don't come to it, then you just didn't connect with it. And that's okay. You just move on to the next one. <laughs> Brianka, thank you for coming to talk with me and for sharing your own craft to our listeners. Please enjoy this creativity conversation. Kelgard, Chair of Visual Arts, and it's my great pleasure to welcome John Gray here for a creativity conversation. He's been with us for about a week and a half out of a two, almost two-week residency and constructing two pieces on campus, and we just wanted to have a conversation about creativity. So I, I thought we might start with sort of how and when you decided you wanted to become an artist. It's a big one, um, but it was a, a very early time in my life. Um, my earliest memories were of a, a babysitter saying, John gets the good crayons because he's the artist. You know, we're sort of with this group of kids, <laughs> this kind of awful thing. But as a three or four year old, I started to identify myself that way. And I really enjoyed the act. Having the opportunity, I, I grew up in Minneapolis as a, as a young person, and there were these Calder workshops that he led and we built our own circuses. So this very early influence in the museum world. My mother constantly telling me, never think about money, just make your work. And your mom's a poet, you said. Yeah. I think I just wanted to talk about a couple of things that I've really noticed that has influenced um, you as an artist. And I guess the first one that really pops out is just natural forms. Mm -hmm. And I think we can see it in all the work that you do. And you also work with the effects of nature directly on the works themselves. I was listening to an earlier creativity conversation um, last night with Margaret Atwood, and she suggested that people are really interested in art and in creating art, and that she had read someplace that it was kind of an, an it was an instinct that was developed at a very early stage of human development, hmm. and that perhaps it gave us survival advantage to be able to create art. And I wondered if you thought that was true for you, that it was a survival advantage to be involved with the arts. <laughs> I think I, I think that that would be an ideal. I'd, I'd love to think that's true. For myself, I've, I've noticed that I've moved the direction of my work from this early place of making these solitary objects in reflection based on interactions with the natural world. And it's come to this far extreme where it's much more about a creative act in tandem with as many other people with as much of their input as possible while that creative act is going on rather than having that, both that safety and that control of that looking back and retrospect. And nature for you? Is it just because you love to be in nature or is it? That's a, that's a big part of it. I had, um, when I finished school, I had a travel grant, which gave me about six months of wandering through Central America. And I'm not very good at moderation and that became about six years of traveling around the world, um, just coming up with some means, I, largely making just simple life drawings, different places. So I'd be in a small street in Vietnam, draw from life, and then sell those drawings to continue the traveling. And I kept finding myself drawn to different sites that were funerary in nature. So something very overt, like the pyramids in Egypt, or uh, there are these beautiful conical towers in the Altiplano on Peru. And I found I was more drawn to something like these, these towers 
on Lake Titicaca than the pyramids because there wasn't quite enough information, at least that I could find readily, telling me exactly what was going on beyond the fact that there were human remains in the base of these towers. So I really like to start to project the story of what was going on there. After a while, sort of running into a lot of these different funerary sites, I started then seeking them out. And the ones that were most interesting for me were the sites that were of the natural world rather than something architecturally constructed. There was a really interesting example in the former DMZ in Vietnam between the North and South. I went and visited and through a translator uh, found out about this indigenous practice where a group of people would take the remains of a person that had just died. They'd go out to this forest with very large old growth trees and they'd carve a notch in these old growth trees, large enough to a cavity to put the person's body into this cavity. And cover it with a kind of a, a grating of branches and leave it there for a year so that it could decompose. And then they would take it out of this, this wound in the tree and it would continue along a, a much more elaborate series of ritual. But I really like the idea that they never used a tree again for another body. So you had what I thought of as a forest of the dead where each of these large trees represented a person. And now during the war with America, the, the American War as it's called there, this forest was totally decimated. So what I was now looking at was new growth trees. So it's a very lush jungle, but nothing you know, in diameter beyond this. And so it was a really compelling exercise for me to get to imagine this forest of the dead in juxtaposition to what's now there. And it spurred a whole body of work. So it was being able to look at the natural world as it is and think about how it's been affected by how we interact with it and then inter interacting with it myself. So that's sort of the beginnings of shifting from how we kind of construct the world according to our architecture and our cities and moving out into the wilds. And then it's kind of continued beyond that. So it, it's really wonderful for me to think about things on a, a scale like the Grand Canyon, where it's pretty far removed from our direct interaction. It's sort of like the history. I was going to I was going to try to segue into science there, but actually it's more about the history and the knowledge of the science, but also history of every place that you've traveled. Mm -hmm. And so do you study that history or are you just kind of... Absolutely, but I, I maybe in a little bit kind of reverse fashion, it, it's much nicer for me to go somewhere not knowing so much. I'm always sort of amazed by people who do such a good job of researching before they go. But I'll, I'll go to a place and then I'm very inspired once I have that kind of visceral sense of the place and the people to do my research afterwards. So what does that mean for you, research? Um, you, you know, it's largely interacting with people. But I mean, it can be very traditional or I'll, I'll read, you know, the history of, of something or a particular type of art that was made in, a, in an area or a group of people that's indigenous to the area. It's much more successful for me if I can then seek out people that have a, a certain knowledge on a, a subject in an area and then have that conversation. And do you use photography too a lot for right. inspiration? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, photography's become really central because so much of what I do is so ephemeral that to be able to document it is what we then have. For me, the, the, the best context to see my work is to see a project sort of before it's unfolded alongside of a project that's already interacted in the world in some way. And then to connect those two projects with photographs of one that's complete so that you can imagine what's going to happen with this project that hasn't sort of come to fruition yet and project through a base of knowledge with a similar. So it's, you don't really know, but you have enough of a sense of what's happened with another project. I, I was thinking a lot about craftsmanship because I think that the pieces that you show 
have a, a level of craftsmanship, which I think is extremely high. I was reading a little bit in this, there's a new book from uh, Richard Sennett called The Craftsman. It's published by Yale University Press. And he talks a lot about the skill of making things well. Mm -hmm. And he's actually this, the first of a series of three books which he's writing. One is on crafting rituals to manage aggression and mm -hmm. zeal. And the third book was going to be the, on the skills required for making and living in a sustainable environment. But craftsmanship equates with the making of things with, with culture and suggests that it's a basic human impulse, the intimate connection between the hand and the head. You know, between the practices and thinking. And I wondered how you view your own interest and practice of craftsmanship. It's a really loaded subject for me, so I'll try to stay on one path with it. Um, just in the, the world of art criticism, there's a real desire to kind of divide craft from contemporary art. And I have a real problem with that. And early on, there were these sort of statements about, well, what I'm doing is, is or isn't craft. And it, it, the idea that it could or couldn't be craft according to the art world seemed a little crazy to me. The other thing that's important to me about craft is that I went through this period of, of trying, of, of craft as metier, as a, as a kind of skill set that you develop and it, you become better and better and better at something. I found that the better my craft became, something kind of died for me in what I was making. That it became something, not that it was easy for me, but that there was less unknown. And I felt like what I was doing was relying upon this collective knowledge and using this collective knowledge to arrive at this way of making something. And it's part of why now this desire to make something with many, many people. So I don't have both control of doing it myself but that you actually have this kind of social contract, I guess you might, you might call it, but a group of people that are all crafting this together and figuring it out. And so your end result might not be sort of perfectly made, but you have all these interesting decisions that when you see it as a whole, don't stand out as little specific decisions, but completely change it compared to one person being able to have created it. Yeah, and that's interesting because he said that resistance and ambiguity were really important instructive experiences from which the craftsman learns. So in a sense, you've sort of, you're creating situations in which you have to respond to the environment. But at the same time, a lot of the pieces that you have made are really beautiful because of the craftsmanship. In part of a little program I've set for myself is to marry two different types of material. So I might take wood and I might take a material like this, which is a corn-based resin, which is a very novel material, breaks down through exposure to moisture very, very rapidly. And if I do a project where I have two different types of materials. I have the kind of sense of safety and security of the one material, which then gives you, you know, room to kind of really mess up with the other material. Science? I think you had early experiences with science. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my stepfather has a, he's run a lab for as long as I've known him. So I would do a, a summer working in the lab kind of cutting up manduka moths. And I had the idea of, of what it is to sort of think, as, well, I mean, not just to think as a scientist, but how you kind of order your questioning process. And I like to apply that to, to what I do, that and the way an architect thinks. Both of those, those types of ways of approaching things have been really helpful, instead of as I've been trained as an artist to pose questions with my work. Which is what? How were you trained as an artist to pose questions? Oh, well, I've, I think I've spent so much time trying to kind of break that down and, and look at these other ways of, of approaching it that just feel a little less self-conscious and I think more socially based so that it's not so much about just one response to things. And um, when you came here in your first visit in July, and I know you met with a lot of people and that had a big influence in the way you thought about the 
how to put this project together. Can you just tell us a little bit about who you met with and what was really inspiring about the people that you talked to? to? Well, it was an amazing flood. It was two days of so many different meetings and from so many different apartments. And I see these great faces out here from people that I got to meet with them. It, I felt like I had all sorts of sparks and how would I distill? There's so many things I was responding to within this, just beginning with this notion of how we think about water in this very specific landscape and in this community. And, and I became most, I had to kind of narrow all of these different um, points of excitement down to the, the research that's going on with the West Nile virus, and then this idea of choreographing a dance in response and in tandem. Um, I shouldn't say in response at all. I really like this idea that we do this kind of talking back and forth and that th th the dance can inform what this thing becomes over time as well. So those different modalities of making things were the, the really exciting parts for me. So when you went back to your studio, like, can you just tell us a little bit about how you sort of thought about the process? You know, sort of what what was the first thing and then where did that lead you to something the else? The really messy, so, true story. The yes, part, go ahead. Good. Yes, please. <laughs> the part of that is, is, you know, I come back and I'm full bore into another project and then there have been three others in the midst. And so it's these great downtimes where you're, you know, you're at the end of a 14 hour day in the studio and you have this aha moment. And it's, it's so much how I, I work. I don't have this kind of linear trajectory where I have some thoughts and I make a sketch and and then build models and then come and com complete something. It's much more kind of in the midst of other things and then hopefully I have something to write it down and, and, and keep a note for where I'm going. So very nonlinear and in the midst of other things. And part of what really works about that for me is with each project, um, with this project in particular, as we're making it, I find there are three, four, five ways I wish we could continue the exploration in another direction. But in order to make it a successful piece, there has to be a certain degree of simplicity. So that's when it can come in. You know, I'm working on this project in Seattle where strangely I've been given a 165 foot wooden schooner and we've cut it into sections and got all this wood and we're making a very large sculpture out of this, this historic ship, this wood that's been underwater for more than a century. In working on that, sort of having this break and coming back, I have my Emory moment. So I'm, I'm sort of underwater with this ship in my mind, and you sort of step mm -hmm. back and say, well, I can't do four things with that ship project, but I can bring something. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that it's both water, too. In water, it just it permeates everything. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about materials and scale, because you've done a lot of experimentation with different kinds of materials. and. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to show a couple of images of different things. Yeah, that... could this, this just a couple of minutes of running through this project might speak to that. So as I said, the, the material of what we're seeing here, each of these forms that we're seeing is about 24 feet tall and made out of two materials, a corn-based polymer, which is a kind of a, a, a more rigid sheet, which is creating a kind of spinal structure inside each of these forms. And then on the surface, it's an industrial product called Dissolvo, which is what it does. It, it's designed to be a, a wall when you're welding inside uh, plumbing. and You don't want your fumes to come through. You basically wall it so that the fumes won't come through. And then when you're done with your welding, you wash it. And the idea is that, that this washes into little particles without binders that are environmentally benign that mm -hmm. can go into our water systems without adversely affecting anything. So that's what's kind of novel about the material. It's also very lightweight. So each of these structures is about eight pounds, even though they're 24 feet tall. And what we did here, this is a, a it's an exhibition space called Fabrica, and it's a deconsecrated church in Brighton. So right on the English Channel, just south of London. And came in and um, similar to my experience here, I had two days to go to this church and see what I might think of in terms of responding to. So came back um, and we flooded half the church with the India ink 
So that's what you're sort of seeing in the foreground here. And we lowered 10 of these 20 forms into that India ink, which leached up in this very wonderful painterly way. So mm -hmm. it would leach up and then the weight, because these are only eight pounds, the weight at the bottom, it would kind of start to bring it down with it. But it was also a piece that we designed in a very interactive way. So you can see that when somebody would move through the gallery, a little bit of breeze would move these forms because they're so lightweight. But you could also lean under and get inside one of these forms and have a very private experience. Each one was just held up with one piece of string. And each of those pieces of string had a little pulley, kind of like what we're doing out here. But with this, you had 20 of them, and all of these lines on pulleys came to one point directly above the pulpit and then came down right onto the pulpit. So like a harp, you could stand at the pulpit and give and release tension to each string. So you, you would basically be lowering them into the ink. The problem we had in terms of the interactive nature is you'd have something like this where somebody decided to drop it six feet at once. And this, the, the exhibition needed to last for six weeks. So we had to curtail access to people just doing exactly what they wanted in that way. But the inspiration for the piece had to do with this type of photoplankton that we're seeing in a microscopic view here called a coccolithophore. And this is actually its skeletal structure, a little calcium shell. And then here we're seeing a satellite view of what these blooms, these one month blooms look like and the way they would displace light just inches below the surface of the sea. I really love the idea of these creatures dying in mass at the end of their bloom and all of these shells slowly coming down to the ocean floor. Millennia ago, this is what happened to create the White Cliffs of Dover. And geologists call this strata the elephant bed informally. So this is what I decided to title the piece. I like this idea of bringing the scale of these shells such that we could actually inhabit them as viewers and then watch them disappear into this pool of ink. So part of the challenge, because we lost our budget for shipping, was that I needed to bring all of these pieces on British Air in three suitcases. <laughs> so um, that involved then having 70 people help me actually put them together, like origami, with these little jigs that I built in about a 12-day period. So very similar to the time frame that we have here. And it was really um, an early piece for me in terms of realizing how much you could gain from the input of all these people helping you to make something and realizing I wasn't taking enough advantage of all that input. The next part of what I ended up doing was going back to Seattle and returning at the end of this, this run of the exhibition. And at the end of the run of the exhibition, half of these sculptures had gone down into the ink and completely disappeared. We still had 10 of them left. So I returned again with my three suitcases filled as heavily as I could with sections of bamboo that I could telescope and create these structures inside to give them a little bit more rigidity so that we could walk them out of the church through these narrow city lanes. This is, this is a, a bit of a comical view just because it's sped up, but it gives you a little sense of what that, that process was like. We're really hoping it's not raining or that it's, it's uh, too windy, but then we took them directly into the English Channel, which was kind of a beautiful part of that project. The only frustrating part of it for me was that we had two teams of underwater divers with video cameras because circling back to a little bit of what we were discussing earlier, this point of inspiration for the piece for me was just that, imagining myself underwater and having this sort of Ophelia-esque dress forms coming in and just dis dissipating over my head. And that wasn't what happened because there was such surf being created. So we weren't quite able to get that mm. happen. But what we did have another round, basically a, another museum in the United States asked me to replicate the project and do some other version of it. And I was excited about the idea that, okay, well, it's gonna be in this, this bay that's very controlled. The problem we had, the museum here had a shiny, this was the, the inaugural show for a new museum, the Watka Museum. And so the museum was a shiny black surface. And then our pool of ink was only about this high. 
So it was really kind of hard to know necessarily where the ink was and where the, the floor was. And I think we had 24, 25 people fall in the ink inadvertently, <laughs> which was, it was, it, it, nobody got hurt. That was, we, I know we had a, um, we had a 16 month old baby crawl into the ink. Um, and my favorite moment was this man during the opening, because it was the inaugural show for this museum, we had 6,000 people at the opening. And this man was kind of having this moment around the piece and he had white pants on him. And, and fell into the ink. And there was a woman that was standing next to me, had no idea that I was the artist, but she was very well dressed and said that man had no business wearing white pants in November. The last thing I'll say to this is this image here is just a drawing I did. So when I went for that initial two day visit to Brighton, thinking about what I wanted to make, this is what I wanted to make. I wanted mm -hmm. to make a piece out there's this wonderfully burned out pier going out into the into the sea. And so I wanted to use this corn-based polymer. The corn-based polymers that I found come in different types so that they can disintegrate within 30 seconds like they did when we walked them into the channel, or they can take 10 years. So anywhere in between that, so you can kind of structure the, the duration of time with what you build, how quickly it'll break down. So I had this idea of something breaking down over a two-month period. In the end, we couldn't afford the transportation, so I had to come up with the whole other way of working with these flat things that could be folded out. But you can see what a difference it is in terms of thinking this thing through. Here's a, a view of, of what I thought it would be one large monolithic form inside this church that would slowly sink down in, revealing a, a large form inside of it as well. So it became a completely different thing mm -hmm. when all these other outside mm -hmm. forces entered into the mm -hmm. equation. Yeah, I guess that's the artistic process. Huh? Yeah, and it's how much do you embrace that, that unknown? For me, it's very incremental where I become a little more comfortable and think, well, okay, I can do this because I've had some successful projects now and I can really fail. So if this one's a failure, it'll be what it is. I wondered, um, just talking about materials, because the materials that we're using here are the bottles, which actually have, it's quite remarkable to see them change from trash and empty bottles into these things that look so organic. It's, for me, a really wonderful reversal of how I've been working. I've primarily been making things out of relatively pristine material and then introducing them to various natural environments. For instance, this piece right here is designed to be eaten by termites. So to take something that's already kind of complete and kind of reverse it through heat into creating something out of this, it's, it's a, a wonderful, and it was, again, it was an aha moment here, realizing that there was this relationship with um, Coca-Cola supporting the university earlier and and thinking about what that meant you know, to this environment and using that product and transforming it. It just felt like a kind of natural fit. And also breeding mosquitoes in, at the same time. <laughs> and it just, I mean, this is our, just today is the first time we've actually gotten our, our little forms out. And they are collecting water. It's pretty wonderful. It makes me a little nervous of the weight when you think of all of those little added little bits of weight. But we're getting these, these little drops or these little, you know, quarter to eighth inch pools of water in the bottom of these spoon forms. So we do have what can really appear to be these little incubators. Yes, yeah, just an appearance, not we're right. seriously breeding this. <laughs> going to introduce West Nile here. Yeah, we hope. <laughs> and I wondered, you know, when, when somebody sees your work on the kinds of materials, what is it that you want them to take away from that experience? I'm so much more interested in what they project than then they're reading what it is that I'm doing. And I don't mean to dodge that question, but it's just part of why I'm so excited about the idea of making something that changes in an environment. It's, it's just that because, especially going back to this idea where if you're in a context where you understand the, 
the, the whole story of one project and then you see this other project before it's completely taken root. You just hear such wonderful ideas of how people anticipate where this is going to go. It's part of what I've really liked about this experience at Emory. I don't think people had a very clear sense of what this would look like. Yes, I think that's true. <laughs> Maybe that's a little unsettling. But, but I, I think it's so much more interesting then because then you've got this wonder and it unfolds and it's also much better because it's not me trying to arrive at this pre you know destined thing it's it, it's unfolding according to how we're making it in the ideal world how would you gather those kinds of responses to the artwork because i mean so many of those are just transitory and you never you know you often you don't hear that that response and especially since us up for such a long time i'm just curious about if there's something we could do to actually capture some of that with some of my projects, they're, they're, they're sculptures that are designed to travel through environments and take physical change through how they travel. And with one piece, I, I had a, it was like a pair of horns and they were underwater in a bay for, for a couple of years. They were actually in oyster fields. They were there long enough so that the oysters would grow on the surface of the sculpture. We had a formal feast sitting around the sculpture, shucked the oysters, and then I bolted them to the front of my truck sort of enormous Texas Longhorn style and went from the coast to southern Utah, 1,500 miles. Apart from this new kind of black coating of bug guts on the sculpture, there was this really wonderful uh, series of experiences where I would pull into a rest stop or the gas station <laughs> and I'd have these conversations. And I did a little bit of rudimentary audio, but I just kind of found people kind of closed up when I did mm -hmm. that. So instead, I just wrote down a lot of the experiences and basically create a little essay based on, on that experience. So that's very different than what we might do at Emory, but it was, again, kind of a byproduct. It wasn't my thinking that I was going to. It was actually really interesting because in this bay, there ended up being this kind of political conflict because the oystermen that allowed me to put this in their bay were using a... So you see all these vertical posts, these PVC posts that sort of feel like gnarled figures. Each have oysters that have attached themselves to it. And the reason this was necessary in this bay is there's an, an invasive species of shrimp that dig up the floor of the sea and they suffocate inadvertently of the oysters mm -hmm. if they're just on the floor with them. So you kind of have two options, put up tens of thousands of these posts or you apply some sort of chemicals that kill these shrimp. But then you're eating those chemicals through your oysters and, and that's kind of what big business does in this area. And they were very um, upset with these oystermen because these oystermen were getting in touch with authorities saying that they're, they're applying these chemicals too close to our natural beds. So there, was, there were death threats, there was all this going on, and my sculpture just kind of happened to be this little witness for it. So it was interesting to go through southern Utah where there's this different political problem, long-standing problem of cattle trampling this area. And I'm so much this kind of strange rancher coming through the area that cattle became this conversation and not directly you know related to that political issue but i just start then thinking about hmm i'm you know having these two parallel political things happen and it's not how i'd ever want to design a project but it's the kind of thing that then starts to feed another project or three other projects yeah it sounds like you're a little bit of a social historian junior yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> amateur there you go. Yeah, yeah yeah and um do you have any thoughts about what you think people will take away from this at Emory? I mean, do, just having been here for a week and a half, do you, do you have a sense of? You know, the core of it for me is I really like the idea that people start connecting different parts of this landscape, that there, there are people who might have a routine of going around the lake, but that, that don't have a kind of direct connection to the quad. Maybe it's more likely that it's the inverse of those two, but that people sort of see these two objects 
or hear the fact that they're there. So you run into one and then you go visit the other. And by connecting those two sculptural forms, it gets you to start thinking about the environment here and making those connections. And ideally, those connections become more and more deep and you start thinking about the different types of water systems in our environment, how we're just discarding our water and, and, and not thinking about the, the system that's designed, the, the urban system to collect all of our wastewater and these events where it overflows and creates the, the context that, that can breed the mosquitoes that then give us West Nile virus. So maybe it can really start to open some of these these questions. I wanted to ask you a question about poetry because I think that there's, when I was reading about your work, there are a lot of people who use the word poetic as a description. And I wondered if you utilize poetry yourself for inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. Seamus Haney, he's somebody whose poems uh, actually decided to, to go to County Mayo and to Northern Ireland and, and went for a couple of months just kind of trying to follow some of the territory that he describes and made this project here called Seeps of Winter. It was, it was taking his poems and, and um, his bog poems in particular and thinking about being one of these people that was accidentally preserved underneath the bogs, kind of imagining myself laying prone like this and just imagining very, very thin strata of bog developing, you know, each year, but that there would still be these points of light. So you would be sort of seeing time slowly close up above you. And I wanted to create that for mm -hmm. the viewer. So that's what this very large object was about. This object also had a kind of a, I, I needed to build in something uncomfortable because it's this, it's of course this beautiful idea of just imagining time passing, but you've also died. And the whole piece was suspended so that it could move yet you only had a one foot gap around the perimeter of the gallery. So you'd kind of give this two ton object a bit of a push and then everybody would kind of run to the edges of the gallery, <laughs> but, but you really, you had nowhere to go. The other part of this, this project that came out of that poetry was thinking about how to, to relate to that environment in such a way that this sculpture could change form gradually as well. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit too long a story, but this winter we're actually taking this sculpture, it breaks into 24 parts and if you can imagine turning it upside down and putting it on stakes, it will be staked up on a glacier and it will allow snow melt to develop or snow, uh, snowpack to develop. And so it'll be this kind of freeze thaw on the surface. This is largely made out of paper pulp, but there are these wax additives as well. It will sort of writhe and wrinkle and contort and then we'll remove it once all the snows dried off in the summer and we'll have this completely different version that's been very directly impacted by the environment. So it has its origins in poetry. I guess I wondered, there's something, I have a little question about community, and did you want to talk a little bit about both your, your own community that you live in in Seattle, but also the community that you're trying to build as you build these projects? I certainly have this community, or the sense of Seattle is this, this really great place for artists, and I think part of that has to do with that there's, there's really good financial support for artists in Seattle, a lot of public and private foundations. And I kind of feel like I want to be an emissary for how well that's done in Seattle for other parts of the country. And then it goes inverse. When I was in France uh, earlier this year for a couple of months, I was amazed at the support they get. So it's certainly not some ideal role model, but I just feel like the more I experience things and share what I've found in terms of how to successfully make your life as an artist, that, that that just kind of continues to kind of develop for me and grow. But I'm not sure I'm getting the gist of, of your question. Well, I just meant that the, the community that you build as you as you go into, as you come to a place like Emory and do a project, it builds a different kind of community oh, here does. than we have had. For me, there's just this wonderful intensity. I only get 
12 or 13 days with you, but I'm going to come away, I feel, at least from my perspective, with these relationships and friendships that I've developed that feel like they've taken months to develop because we're all having to work so hard and it's so kind of crazy for a couple of weeks. And because we're involved in figuring out, making sure that this works and all these different ways, making all these decisions together, there's a, a degree of commitment that we all have with one another relative to an older model when I, when I first started working where you kind of come in with a completed object and then people respond to it at an opening and then we're done. It's, it's just, it's not something that actually forms these bonds in the same way. Yeah, it's been quite lovely for us. I guess I wondered what the word creativity means to you. I think it's, it's a combination of, of making room for a great degree of risk and failure. And then also making sure you balance that with a certain degree of kind of stability and a kind of structure that enables you to sort of go to those places. I had when I, when I first set up my studio in Seattle, I was a caretaker in a building that had been a brothel. It was actually part of former Skid Row. And the inhabitants prior to my moving in were actually Nirvana, the, the band Nirvana. So they used this as a, as a, as a um, rehearsal space. So it went from this brothel to, to 20 years of nothing in there, then Nirvana, and then I came in and this was a studio space. It was a very peculiar thing because I had just a cluster of four or five rooms, but there were two entire floors of this hotel that were open and I was allowed to use them. So I think I had something like 120 hotel rooms with these big open atriums in between allowing light in. So it was this right. magical thing. I ended up with something like half a dozen friends sharing the space with me sort of quietly. All of the space in the middle of the arts district in downtown Seattle. So it was this crazy thing. And we were splitting the $500 rent amongst all of us <laughs> to live and work in this space. But all having all of these different rooms allowed me to have a different room for all these strange, simple needs. You know, mm -hmm. like we just put all our cardboard in one room. And at a certain point, I carved out two rooms and called them my rooms of failure. With whatever I was working on, if it, you know, I'd be making these sculpture, sculptural forms and I'm 30% into the thing and I can just tell it's not working out, I just go put it in the room of failure. And the room of failure grew over a number of years. And what was really wonderful about that was being able to go into that room and sort of visit all the ways you've failed and then look at ways in which you might be able to actually come back to a certain piece mm -hmm. after a number of years. So in this really tangible, literal way, mm -hmm. it was, was really helpful. Mm -hmm. That's nice. And uh, what surprises you most as you make your work? Oh, there, I, that, that I just, there's no way I, I will ever anticipate what ends up being most interesting about a process like this where I'm introducing all these unknown forces and you design all of these ways to respond to them and then there's always something that you, you just didn't expect. I had a, a piece that I, uh, the construct for me was making a simple piece that I elevated into the trees. It was completely edible and I wanted birds to pick it apart. So it's this edible piece that birds pick apart. And the idea came to me because I feel like there's a lot of ego involved in putting an object out into a landscape when a lot of times the landscape's very interesting in and of itself. So I like the idea that these birds would pick apart this form that I made and then just shit it all across the mesa. <laughs> that this is what ends up happening to my ego. And the problem I ran into was that little rodents were climbing out on the guy wires and, and displacing the birds so that the birds couldn't eat. And so there's this kind of moment where I think, all right, do I simply roll with what the environment comes back to me with or do I try and get to my original? And in this case, I, I ended up, I was speaking to a woman that was a birder. She had this great idea, which I ended up following through and just had, took a, a, a liquid form of a jalapeno and applied it mm. to the entire surface, mm. which the mammals can't tolerate just as we can, but the birds have no problem. So that was the way to kind of respond to that, that curveball. 
those are funny things. It's like I, somebody told me if I put bay leaves on the string of my hummingbird feeder, then the ants would not go down. And it's true, they don't go down. It's amazing. But those are things that you, it takes a long time to find the right person who actually has a cure. <laughs> and, um, and I wanted to ask if you'd talk a little bit about the job of actually being an artist, because you have quite a large studio, and so you're the artist, but also the kind of entrepreneur and the yeah. proprietor and the... Yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of having to learn that as I go, just because things have grown quite a bit. So I have 10 people working in my studio. And it's been a, a funny process here where we've been shooting back and forth some video as they're doing various projects. Skype has been this wonderful tool if you're, if you're somewhere. So, so learning how to trust people is, is the big thing, that we've been together long enough that they can make certain decisions and that those decisions may be more interesting than my own, certainly if it's multiple people making those decisions. So I think that's the big takeaway for me is trusting people to, to delegate different parts of the process too. And that comes also, the other part of it is having people with expertise that I would never have, engineers working on some of these projects that have these brilliant ideas, people that can build digital models of, of projects that I'm making. Thank you for listening to this Creativity Conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Emory University and Arts at Emory. It was produced by Emma Yarbrough and me, Maggie Becker. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and follow us on Facebook at Arts at Emory and on Instagram at Emory Arts.